Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. This episode of the podcast is a question and answer session with Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. This session begins with an explanation of the Theopolis logo and its significance, and moves into a question about the church fathers and their reading of scripture. They'll then move into a discussion about Paul's seemingly negative statements about the law, compared with other passages of scripture, such as Psalm 119, that exalt the law. And finally, they'll address a question about what baptism does for a person. Before we get into the episode, we wanted to remind you about the Theopolitan Society and how to become a Theopolis partner. We at Theopolis are fully funded by gifts and donations, and if you give $500 in a one-time gift or $45 a month, you'll be enrolled as a Theopolis partner. So what do you get as a Theopolis partner? Well, for starters, you'll receive a weekly members-only newsletter from Peter Lightheart. This weekly email is really amazing, and it includes Peter's reading notes, updates on his writing and lectures. He gives inside glimpses into life at Theopolis. You may receive chapters of books before they come out. And in general, you'll get a very generous look into Peter and Theopolis' work. And you'll get free access to all recordings of our courses and ebooks that'll be coming out. So if this sounds like something you'd like to be a part of, I have a link down there in the show notes for you where you can donate and you can join us in this work. With that, we hope that you are encouraged and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers answering your questions. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts and with Pastor Jeff Myers, who are joining us from a distance. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background helping to make sure that everything is running smoothly. We had started a series in the Gospel of John, and we'll continue that in the next episode. We'll be looking at the, the Book of Signs, as it's called in the Gospel of John, for the next couple of months until the beginning of Advent. This particular week, we're going to do what we do with uh, some regularity, uh, and we're going to answer some of the questions that you listeners have posted on our Curious Cat account. We've selected some of them. We've selected ones that we think we know the answer to so that we can uh, sound intelligent as we seek, try to answer them. Before we get to the, uh, to the rest of them, I had one question came in concerning the, the meaning of the Theopolis logo, and I wanted to spend a couple of seconds talking about what that logo is, what it means. There's a, a fairly lengthy description on the website of the, of the logo. I think our logo is the best thing that we have at Theopolis. I mean, Alistair is great. It's, uh, Jeff is okay. We miss Jim. Uh, but the logo, the logo is the best thing we have going. And Kraven came up with this, trying to work off of the name of, of our institute, the Theopolis Institute. So part of the image is a cityscape. It's a cityscape above a horizon. And you can take that in a couple of different senses. You can see it as a cityscape that's uh, above the horizon, a heavenly city that's reflected down below the horizon. So that's the heavenly city imprinting its, the heavenly city of God imprinting itself on the cities of men, on the earthly city. Uh, there's a reference, there's a, a visual allusion to the final visions of Revelation, where the heavenly city is not just imprinting itself on, on earth, but is actually coming down from heaven and joining earth. So you have this uh, heavenly city that makes up both heavens and earth, the heavens and the earth. So it has that cityscape image and, and captures the, 
really the, the mission of Theopolis, which is to promote and to restore and to serve the city of God for the sake of the cities of men. So that the city of God that is to come forms and molds and reshapes human culture and human societies. When you put those two things together, there's a, there's a, a kind of cross shape, the city coming down and then the horizon across. So there's, a, there's, there's also a kind of cruciform shape to it which again fits with the mission. We, you know, one way to say what we're trying to do is we're trying to serve the church so that the cross is imprinted on the whole of reality. So the whole of reality becomes cruciform so that Jesus Christ is exalted in creation. I mean, you could go into all the stuff that we talk about with the cross of reality and Oregon Rosenstock QC, and there would be a lot to do with that. Uh, Crevin didn't have that in mind when they created the logo, but that, uh, that's, for us, that's been part of the meaning of it. My vision of the logo, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for the time. I think the logo and Theopolis will have come into its own uh, when some martyr somewhere uh, forms the Theopolis logo in his own blood in the dust as he's falling to the earth. It's easy to do with, you got three fingers down and then three fingers across. You can do that. You can do it as a benediction. You can do it as a parting message. Uh, the first Theopolis martyr, I hope, will... Uh, imprint that uh, logo on uh, on the earth so you make it sound like this is a new religion or something <laughs> uh it's it is a cross jeff so it's it's a it's the uh, old-time religion we were trying to keep the old-time religion so um that's a little bit uh, the 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 discussion on the website has is longer than that but it's basically hitting on those same points about the uh the purpose of the of the logo and what it's what it's designed to signify uh, but again i think it's a it's a brilliant in capitalization of what we're about. And I'm very grateful to uh, the Creven organization for coming up with that several years ago. So um, the other questions are, I guess, more theological than uh, a bunch of other questions that we have. We'll try to get through several of these. We usually get sidetracked and spend a lot of time with each question, but we'll try to get through several of them today. Uh, the first one uh, is a uh, question for recommendation of books. And that is, can you recommend books on the hermeneutics of the Church Fathers, patristic hermeneutics? Uh, and I thought of several that I think are valuable books. Uh, one of them is uh, Jean Danielu's book, The Bible and the Liturgy. Danielu was a Roman Catholic theologian from the early to mid-20th century. He wrote scads and scads of stuff. He's part of the, this resurgence of patristic and biblical theology in the Catholic Church. And the Bible and the liturgy is largely about the liturgical interpretation of Scripture by the Church Fathers. Uh, so you learn a lot about how the Bible, what the Bible teaches about liturgy, but uh, the way Danielu sets it up is by, primarily by uh, looking at how the Church Fathers used water imagery of the flood and the, and the exodus and so on, and how they use that, as the Bible does, those passages in the Bible that use those images, how they use that to discuss baptism or different food events that are used to discuss uh, the Lord's Supper. That's a good book for bringing together a, a couple of our obsessions. It's typological reading of the Bible from the Church Fathers, but it's typological reading of the Bible that's directed toward liturgical life and seeing liturgical typologies in Scripture. I lost my connection for a minute there. You mentioned Bible and liturgy. Did you mention his other book, From Shadow to Reality? No, go ahead and talk about that if you want. Yeah, that's a good one. That's also a amazing book in so many ways because he deals with various topics like you just mentioned baptism 
Red Sea and shows how uh, Old Testament uh, types are fulfilled in the New Testament and how the fathers did that. Very helpful. I, you know, someone who someone who wants to uh, dig into patristic works might pick up, you know, the homilies of uh, Augustine or even Origen or any of the church fathers. And they're likely, <laughs> if, I, if they weren't not warned about it, they're going to be tempted to accuse him of arbitrary interpretations and all sorts of things. You really need somebody to guide you, kind of like the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah didn't know what to think of it unless someone helped him and Philip comes along. So Danilu is one of the guys I think that really helps people appreciate what the fathers were doing um, so as not to just knee-jerk react uh, against their allegorical and typological interpretations. Yeah, that puts me in mind of another book that I, I didn't have on my initial list, but Moises Silva's book, Has the Church Misread the Bible? He does, discusses patristic hermeneutics to some extent, but primarily it's about more about how a modern, modern Bible interpretation is in some ways inferior to pre-modern Bible interpretation from the church fathers and from medieval theologians. Of course, Silva is a Reformed New Testament scholar, so he's also talking about the, uh, the Reformation understanding of Scripture. Uh, but he has an example, he has a, a section in the book where he's discussing origin uh, and talking about the value of origin's interpretation of, of Scripture. That's a, that's a really good defense of the pre-modern forms of interpretation from Moises Silva. I found Brevet Charles helpful on some of these things as well. His discussion of origin again um, is a sympathetic one that shows that he's not just about allegorical interpretation as such, but following the dominical um, warrant to read and understand Christ as being present within the Old Testament. Now, we may have a lot of differences with his readings, but that fundamental instinct, I think, is one that we very much try to pr protect and um, pursue in Theopolis. I would also suggest that what we're trying to do is to bring together the... Um, Christological and typological and allegorical to some extent readings of the Old and New Testaments that you'll find in the Church Fathers and apply some of the rigour and the disciplines that come to the foreground with the literal sense of the Reformers and recognising that following that literal sense faithfully will lead you to these more typological and allegorical readings that are often neglected because people have not been following the literal sense as faithfully and as um, determinedly as they could do. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Um, that is the theory throughout the pre-Reformation era, the church fathers and the medieval theologians, when they talk about the, when they talk about hermeneutics, they, they don't use that kind of terms, they don't theorize a lot. But when they talk about it, they are insistent on the uh, importance of the literal sense. Medievals talk more theoretically about it, and uh, Thomas Aquinas, for example, defending uh, the quadriga, the fourfold method of interpretation, insists that the literal sense is the basis for all the spiritual senses. Uh, and you find that in the Church Fathers without being theorized as thoroughly, but Origen spends a lot of time trying to figure out the geography of the passages that he's looking at. And he's trying to, he's, he's very much concerned about establishing a literal sense that's going to be the basis for these, these extrapolations. I think one of the differences post-Reformation is that, especially in the last two centuries, we just know a whole lot more about 
the ancient world and about the first century, about first century Judaism and first century Rome than they did in uh, earlier centuries. Uh, one other book that I would recommend, uh, this uh, Henri de Lubac, another Roman Catholic of the mid-20th century, has a multi-volume work that's been translated fairly recently into English uh, called Medieval Exegesis. And as the title indicates, that's going beyond the Church Fathers. But he has a substantial section at the beginning of the first volume where he's talking about the development of the quadriga, the medieval fourfold sense of Scripture, and talks about how it develops within the Church Fathers. Augustine doesn't use the fourfold idea, but he does use a distinction between the literal and the spiritual senses. Uh, Origen operates on something similar, and he's tracing the emergence of this fourfold sense from the earliest writers into the early medieval period. So um, that's not a that's not a full full book on it, but it's a, a helpful introduction to uh, the way that uh, church fathers are reading scripture. I'd, I also want to uh, pick up on a comment you made, Jeff, that I'd urge people to do some dabbling in some of the church fathers. I agree that there's a great a need for a guide and usefulness for a guide, but so much of this material is available in English translation uh, or in modern European languages. There's a number of different series that make these works accessible, both in, in their full, you get full treatises. Catholic University of America has a long-standing series of patristic texts. There's a, a New City Press is, is putting out an, uh, a gigantic series on Augustine. And you have InterVarsity Press is also putting out a series of patristic commentaries that are not full treatises. Some of the, they started out with um, doing commentaries uh, on books of the Bible, but the commentary is taken from patristic and medieval writers. So this, the, uh, the editor of the book is compiling commentary on you know, Genesis 1 from Augustine and Ambrose and Thomas Aquinas and whoever, and providing a summary, uh, snippets of their commentary. Uh, from that, InterVarsity has also produced, um, begun producing, I don't know how many volumes they have, but they've begun producing commentaries, full treatises, on scriptural books. Uh, when I did my Revelation commentary, I used the, the volumes that they had done. They have a, a volume of Western Latin uh, commentary on Revelation. They have a volume of Eastern commentary, patristic commentary on Revelation. That series is also, uh, at least some volumes are out in that series. It's also worth paying attention to the way that the fathers used scripture within the context of their sermons and their liturgies. That gives a fuller sense of how they saw the scripture relating to the life of the church. Let's go on to another question. We could talk about the one uh, at much more length, but a second question is has to do with the law. And the question is, how are Paul's negative statements about the law in Colossians and elsewhere compatible with the exalted language applied to the law in Psalm 119 and other places? If you read Paul's discussion of the law in Romans and Colossians and Galatians in particular, you will often focus upon the negative themes the law associated with curse, with death, with sort of death-dealing um, principle that acquaints us with our sin. But even alongside that, within those contexts, you'll find positive declarations of what the law represents. So, for instance, in Romans chapter 8, um, verse Three, you have the law described as um, 
God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. It's the law of the spirit of life that has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. The law represents a number of related realities for Paul and not all of those are negative. Some of those are seen in a transformation of the law. So the law dies and is raised again. But the problem with the law is not so much the law itself, but the law in collision with sinful human flesh and the way that it's insufficient to bring life, but yet it can bring condemnation, death, curse, judgment, etc. And the law in that aspect has been dealt with at the cross. And with resurrection life, we are able to deal with the law not so much as that negative force but with the more positive sense that you'll find within Psalm 119 and elsewhere where the law is that which leads us into life and wisdom it's that which describes the shape of life lived according to the freedom that Christ has brought us into. Um, Go ahead Jeff. (laughs) I had accidentally turned off my my uh, microphone here for last 10 minutes I've been trying to get an word in edgewise and wondering why you guys weren't listening to me. Anyway, I'm back. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, think, I, I think the whole um, overwrought law gospel uh, dichotomy uh, that stems, of course, partly from the Reformation, mostly from Luther, uh, has really hampered us from understanding the various uses of namas by Paul and by the New Testament authors so that we tend to reduce everything to this uh, dichotomy between moral imperatives and the unconditional grace of God, and aren't attuned to the more systematic, system-oriented ways that Paul uses the word. So when you get to Colossians, he's talking about the entire instruction, the system of the old world Torah, and that's why sometimes he can you know, use such disparaging terms to refer to the law, but other times the law is about the moral imperatives, which are good and right and healthy and spiritual. The law gospel dichotomy in its worst form just keeps getting perpetuated by us and doesn't help us in interpreting the scripture. I want to go back to uh, Alistair's point because uh, uh, he's, he's exactly right about um, the way that Paul speaks about the law. Uh, the previous chapter of Romans says it uh, also says it clearly, uh, Romans seven fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage, sold into bondage to sin. So that's the, exactly the class that you were describing, Alistair. The spiritual law. That's the problem. The spiritual law comes to the fleshly person. And the previous verse interestingly says, "Does that mean that the good commandment, the, the commandment verse twelve says, is holy, righteous, and good? Does that mean that the good commandment became a cause of death?" And Paul says, interestingly, uh, that it was a sin in order that it may be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. It's as if the, the law and the law's function within the Old Covenant ends up being kind of, it's part of the indictment of sin. Because if sin is so powerful that it can turn even the good, spiritual, and holy law into an instrument of death, then it uh, shows up sin to be utterly sinful, as Paul says. And uh, sin is utterly sinful. And also, 
too powerful for human beings to overcome. Fortunately, this leads into chapter 8 that Alistair already quoted, God did what the law could not do. It's a clash between the law and the flesh. That's what makes the law deadly. It's not the, it's not the law itself that's, it's, the law itself is good. It's on God's side, as it were. Talking about the law as well within Paul, there's another theme that's playing in the background, not just the theme of sinful flesh, but the theme of growing to maturity. The law was dealing with humanity, particularly in a childhood state, the law associated with command particularly. That rhetorical form is the form of speech that we'll often deal with children when we're trying to instruct them in what they need to do. We will give them commands, do this, don't do that. When you're reading Psalm 119 and elsewhere within the wisdom literature, what you're seeing is a movement from the law conceived of primarily as command and instruction on that level into the law internalized and understood as a principle of wisdom. And that is part of the anthropological treatment of the law that's going on. Not just the law as outside of us, as those who are opposed to it as sinners, but the law as that which has not yet been internalized by us as children. And so it's like the law of a musical instrument, the person who's told to just play the scales. It can be a chore and a frustration for them. The law, the external law of this instrument that's imposing upon their will. But yet as they submit to that law, there will come a time when they enter into the inner freedom of the instrument. And that law is no longer so much an obstacle as a means of expression within an ordered structure. And that, I think, is what um, David is expressing in Psalm 119. And that's part of what's expressed in the maturity that we have when we're no longer under the law. We've been adopted as sons, and now we're acting in the freedom of wisdom. Which is, uh, again, the part of the basis for Paul's uh, criticism, because what he's, he's rebuking Christians who have come into life in the Spirit, they're no longer under that childish system, but then they want to go back in that childish system. It's not just going back in, under the curse, which is true, but it's also a matter of kind of, it's a reversion to childhood. And that's what Paul doesn't want, for example, the Galatians to do. Yeah, that, that's precisely the argument in Galatians chapter 3, which, again, because of the kind of the false law gospel dichotomy, uh, is not appreciated. So in Galatians 3.19, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promises have been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Uh, and then he goes on to talk about once uh, the Son comes under the law uh, and fulfills the law, then we receive our adoption as heirs. But I, let me ask you a question, Alistair. I don't think you meant to imply that the internalization of the law in the New Covenant is opposed to the external uh, commandments and moral law, right? No, it's not opposed. But what you do see, I think, is a shift in rhetoric. So if you look through the Old Testament, you'll see a lot of it, particularly in the first five books of the Pentateuch, you have an emphasis upon command, do this, don't do that. Whereas if you read Paul's epistles, it doesn't really have that much command. Rather, what he does is persuasion. And persuasion is a form of rhetoric that we use with those who are more mature. It's not opposed to the principles of law, but it's explaining mm -hmm. the principles as those who have internalized those, who are no longer facing it primarily as an external authority, but as an internalized principle. 
And that's also something that we notice within the wisdom literature. So within the wisdom literature, whereas you'd have in the law, do not commit adultery, within the wisdom literature, there's a more persuasive form of speech that explains, okay, this is what the sin of adultery looks like. This is its consequences. This is how it plays out in time. And that is a different sort of speech from the law. It's not opposed to it, but it's a development of it. And even within the law itself, there are hints and directions of the reader that push them into that fuller and more searching reading of the law to understand the wisdom within it. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you think that even today there is still a, we might say, a use of the law for childish, immature people? I'm thinking of First Timothy 1, where Paul talks about the law being good if somebody uses it lawfully. And then he says, that it's uh, the law is not for uh, the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for ungodly. And then he has this list. And I've always kind of wondered about that. I mean, that's typically the usus politicus uh, 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 proof text. Uh, but it does seem like there is a use of the law, maybe in a political context, social context, for people who are immature. Maybe that's just part, part of the, the fullness of... Uh, or the complexity of this issue. If I recall, at the end of the freedom of a Christian, Luther himself recognises that purpose of the law for our mm. state in childhood, not just um, redemptive historical childhood, but our actual childhood and immaturity, that it is part of a natural process of growing up, that you have to be addressed in different ways. And that makes it very hard for us to avoid a legalistic way of thinking if we're not careful. Um, mm. And so you do have that stage, but we need to recognize that, like the psalmist, we need to reflect upon the goodness of the law and move beyond that. And so the psalmist is reading the law, he's drawing upon the goodness of the law, but no longer primarily as an external set of arbitrary commands. Well, I'd, I'd question whether we're dealing with arbitrary commands at any point, but uh, I think I was going to affirm what you said at the beginning, that um, when I... Uh, reflected on what I was trying to do as a parent, I think what parenting is is kind of replicating, recapitulating the the process of um, redemptive history because you you do give do's and don'ts to children at a young age. There's a close supervision of your children at a young age, but if you keep them in that kind of childhood, then that's exasperating. That's that doesn't lead them to maturity. So there has to be a movement like you're describing where they uh, they have. Uh, uh, learn the lessons of the commandments, they're internalizing them and their own instincts and their own moral choices are based on the things that they learned as a child, but they're making their own moral choices. That's the kinds of process you want to want to uh, want to follow. But I think I, I, I don't think you're denying this, Alistair, but I, I would want to say, I mean, Paul does give commandments. Um, he does persuade and he, per, the commandments are all rooted in the gospel, but that's that's true in the in the Old Testament law, too. The commandments are rooted in the nature of God and the and the and the Exodus, what God has done for Israel. So there's a theological grounding, um, and there's still a place even for adults, even for mature adults, to be told what to do. I mean, even a mature adult can fall into folly, and a pastor or a friend can say, "Hey, you can't do that." <laughs> so there's, uh, I think you're right, Jeff, that there's a there's a complexity here. We don't, I don't think we outgrow the need for that external word coming to us in its various forms. I think that's part of the way that the Spirit uh, writes the law in our hearts and, and uh, makes us into uh, people that fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. 
Uh, we can move on to a third question. And this may be the last one we get to because this is, although it's a short question, it's a large issue. That question is, what does baptism do for a person? <laughs> In five minutes or less. <laughs> a, 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 great, a great deal. And um, ex opera operato, in fact, it does many things. Uh, it might not do um, what, you know, reformed systematicians want to say is, is regeneration, but it certainly does a lot. It, uh, it incorporates the child or the adult into the body of Christ, into the local body of Christ, and unites him or her to the head, Christ, the head of the body. That's 1 Corinthians 12. Gives them a new name and um, gives them a new trajectory in their life. New names always give you new callings, new vocations. Now, that's just a couple of them. You guys can add more. Yeah, uh, just as a summary way to think about it, I, I found it helpful to uh, think in terms of the Oregon Rosenstock QC Cross of Reality. For those who aren't familiar with Rosenstock QC, the Cross of Reality is basically a temporal line between stretch between past and future and a vertical line, which is a spatial line that's between inside and outside. And uh, you can think about all kinds of issues on that paradigm, but baptism gives us a new past. We're incorporated into a history and a story that begins with Adam and with Abraham and with Jesus. We're given a new future, as Jeff was saying. Uh, we're given a new in-group. We're incorporated into a new family, a new body, a new people. That's our in-group. Uh, and that also points us outward with a new mission to the world and a new way of engaging the world. So in all four of those dimensions, past and future, inside and outside, uh, we're, made, we're made new and we're given this new, this new life. I would add to that that people often talk about baptism in terms of the analogy of marriage. I found the analogy of adoption and coronation to be the most helpful. So when we think about adoption, adoption, first of all, adoption has a more prospective purpose. When is the grace of baptism received? I think for many it's seen you have the grace of baptism when you're converted and then baptism is pointing back to that event. For others it can be seen as baptism is the event itself where it all takes place and there's this great event of grace. The problem is um, five, ten years down the line when you've been driving upon the strength of that grace fuel, and then you run out, you've maybe sinned a few times, um, where are you going to refuel with grace? Whereas for the reformers, baptism was seen to be efficacious for the entirety of your life. And in many respects, that's like adoption, that the meaning of an adoption is not found primarily in that moment in time. Something happens in that moment in time that's remarkable. There's a transition and a change in that person's status. But the outworking of baptism as for adoption is something that occurs over the entirety of the person's life. And the um, end to which it occurs is this entrance into union and fellowship and an ongoing relationship of love. It's also like coronation in that um, when people talk about baptism, they can often think about baptism either as based upon some past event and just pointing back to that, or they can think about it either as an event contained in itself that does everything. Whereas baptism is connected with a broader movement um, in scripture, I think. It's part of the ordinary and I think necessary approach by which we become part of the 
um, people of God, part of the church. And if someone is not baptized, that's a very unusual and inappropriate situation. That doesn't mean they can't be saved, but it's like someone who has acceded to the throne after the death of the former monarch, but has not yet had that coronation. The coronation is the validation, the publication, the um, realization of the fuller meaning of what it means to sit on the throne. If you've not actually been crowned, then there's something lacking there. And so I think baptism can be understood in terms of those two images. I found it helpful to frame it in that way. So the meaning of my baptism is not bound to that past. It's something that is every single day I can return to it, that God has declared me to be his own. And I can hold fast to that fact by faith, just as the adopted child knows that the meaning of his adoption is not just found in the initial signing of the papers or of going home with his new adoptive parents, but in every single day that he lives the life of the love and fellowship with his new family and finally entering into the full inheritance that that entails at the end. Yeah, yeah. I think the point about the reformers is really important uh, that there's, a, I think, a, a sense among Protestants, uh, some Protestants, that the reformers diminish the efficacy of baptism over as over against the medieval church. The medieval church had attributed this tremendous amount of power to baptism, and the, the reformers reduced that. And I really think uh, there's certain senses in which that you can say that's the case, but I think more fundamentally, they're saying the opposite. As you said, Alistair, that they're talking about the efficacy of baptism is not limited to the moment in which it's administered. It's not like that moment you're in and you're guaranteed to be in, uh, but it's the ongoing reality of being united to Christ in his body, of uh, being, a, being a child of God. That's, that's the efficacy of baptism continuing on through an entire life. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Peter. Uh, and just a little dabbling in late medieval theology will show that baptism wasn't much to the medieval theologians. It was the first plank of justification, uh, but it didn't do a whole lot. Penance was the big deal for everybody. Um, penance and, uh, and everything else that went along with uh, getting more and more of infused grace. Um, let's not forget, too, that the Reformers, uh, both Luther and Calvin, uh, followed Augustine and the Scriptures in saying that the one who's baptized has their sins forgiven, sins washed away. Uh, it's Paul himself, when he's retelling the story of his own baptism in Acts 22, recounts what Ananias said to him at his baptism, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Um, so that the forgiveness of sins is connected with baptism. Um, I had a, this is a funny story. I had a, um, a fellow presbyter once uh, ask me if we recited the Nicene Creed in our service. And he said, well, we said, so we don't do that. I said, well, why? Because it says, uh, I believe in uh, baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, where does that come from anywhere? Anyway, I'm like, uh, Acts 22, the Bible? I think that's uh, another, another important point. I think one of the things that we've tried to do in our, in the, at Theopolis and prior to that in Biblical Horizons when talking about the sacraments is uh, begin to uh, reflect on the efficacy of baptism, for example, by taking uh, at face value what the Scriptures say about it. Uh, what, um, what Paul says in, uh, in Acts 
Uh, what Paul says in Romans 6, don't you know that you've been baptized? Don't you know that you've died in union with Christ's death? He goes on to say, he who has died is justified from sin, Romans 6, 7. The death that he's talking about is baptismal death. So Paul says that whoever has died in baptism is justified from sin, liberated from sin. Uh, Peter, of course, says that baptism now saves you. Titus calls baptism, I think he's talking about baptism, the washing of regeneration. So that doesn't solve every problem by any means, but that has to be the, the starting point. And when I, when I did my doctoral work on baptism, kind of the, the aspiration uh, was to come up, try to formulate an understanding of baptism that would make something like 1 Peter 3 the most natural thing in the world to say. Peter doesn't seem to be at all shy about saying baptism now saves you, drawing an analogy with the flood. It just kind of comes off the cuff. What kind of, what kind of understanding of baptism and the church and salvation is built into that that makes that just pop out like a, like a natural thing? So that's, that's been our effort. And I, think, I do think both of you have said this in different ways, but I think the key really is to understand the character of the church. It's not some kind of magic moment uh, at baptism. It's not some kind of magic in the substance of the water. But it's the fact that Jesus has designated this rite, this wa rite in water, as the ritual entry into his people, which is his body, uh, the temple of the Spirit. This is the family of the adopted children of God. If baptism is an, uh, is an induction into that people, then it has all these, all these implications that uh, the rest of the New Testament fills out. So I really think the the issue has, it's equally about ecclesiology uh, as it is uh, sacramental theology. When you're talking about uh, what, what does baptism do for a person, you have to get your ecclesiology straight and figure out what you think the church is. The other thing is to remember that baptism is something that is given by God to us. Many people have framed baptism either in terms of the expression of our faith or in terms of our act of obedience or of, um, some manifestation of our decision for Christ, um, attaching it with our volition, our subjectivity, um, our agency, some other thing like that that's associated with ourselves as agents within the world. But yet baptism is performed upon our bodies. We are baptised. We don't baptise ourselves. Um, the key event is something that's performed upon our bodies. And there's something about our bodies that lies at the very root of who we are as persons. Before we ever develop agency or subjectivity or volition, we are bodies. We belong to a particular place in the world. We are born from another body. Um, we are connected with other persons through our body. And in baptizing our bodies, God is taking us by the root, um, by those things that precede any sense of subjectivity or agency and declaring us to be his own in that very status. The struggle that I think many people have had with understanding the relationship between forgiveness and baptism has been that over-focus upon our agency in baptism and a failure to recognize fully the remarkable fact of what God is doing for us and giving to us. We think of Tertullian and his struggle to think about the issue of post-baptismal sin. Uh, which led to him opposing infant baptism, um, which is something that people often miss, I think, when talking about Tertullian as an argument against infant baptism. His argument against infant baptism was based upon a failure to know what to do with post-baptismal sin. Whereas when we understand the true meaning of what God has done for us and how um, 
unilateral in some sense what he is doing in baptism towards us is we can grasp hold of his grace and the promise because baptism does have promissory characters primarily looking forward to the fellowship that we've been invited into and so grasping hold of that promise of forgiveness and fellowship by faith is something that we can do for the entirety of our lives and it's not based upon some work that we're bringing to God. Well, as expected, we've uh, taken up our time with three questions. We had selected five to try to deal with, uh, but uh, only we only get three this time. Uh, we're continuing to work through the backlog of questions. Keep posting your questions on your Curious Cat account, and we'll get to another Q&A session in about a month. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.